Sponsored by GoRo. Simplifying scout teams through simple and direct Episode 24's guest is the former offensive line coach from the University of Minnesota, Gordy Shaw. Coach Shaw shares stories from his many coaching years at different stops throughout his time in collegiate football. He also discusses his beliefs on offensive line play and the points of emphasis on developing a strong run game. Finally, Coach Shaw reflects on the most memorable stadiums, players, games, and accomplishments from his coaching tenure and discusses his future in the game of football. Don't forget to check out our website at igfootballcoach.com for all our blog posts and podcast episodes. And please leave us a review on one of our podcasting networks, such as iTunes or Stitcher, and help share and grow our program with others. Enjoy our latest guest, Coach Gordy Shaw. We're here with Gordy Shaw, former University of Minnesota offensive line coach and also other numerous stops throughout uh, the coaching profession. Coach, tell us a little bit about your background as a coach and what got you into the coaching profession. Well, what what got me in, Brian, was uh, my wife. Uh, in a roundabout way, I was going to be a I went to college to be a doctor, and then was not going to be able to get into med school after year two with my grades. So I diverted to physical therapy as a pursuit, um, and <clears throat> applied to five physical therapy schools. Got accepted to all of them, but I met this lady. And she was, uh, um, she had a year and a half left to, to go to school to get her degree. So in the meantime, we got engaged and the coaches at the college I played at asked me if I would like to coach. And uh, I was just hanging around waiting to go to uh, physical therapy school. And so I said, sure. And she graduated and then I, I was ready to go. And then uh, uh University uh, Cal State Northridge offered me a full-time job. This is 1976, and I thought, well, making money would be better than going into student debt. So I started coaching at that point and just never left it. I think my college coaches, along with my high school coaches, both knew that I had a great passion for football and that I loved the game so much that uh, they offered that out there to me. And uh, I just never looked back. Um, I've, I started out as an offensive line coach, as a technically a graduate assistant in those two years. Uh, and then I uh, first full-time job was a defensive line coach, and I came back to Cal Poly. Uh, and in 1980, uh, we won a national championship. And I was working on an unbelievable staff at that time. Uh, fewest years coached was 26. Um, so I got mentored by a lot of great men and then I, uh, split off on my own. Uh, we went from Cal Poly to Northern Arizona, which was a step up and I was still the D line coach at Cal po- at Northern Arizona. And then I got offered the offensive coordinator job and offensive line coach at Northern Colorado, which was a division two school back then in 1984, uh, and it was they played in the NCC, which was North Dakota, North Dakota State, South Dakota, South Dakota State. So it was, it was a great conference. And uh, Ron Simonson's the guy that hired me, and and uh, um, I was there four years. Um, my oldest daughter was born in Flagstaff, Arizona. My middle daughter was born in Greeley, Colorado. 
And then I had an opportunity uh, in 1989 to go uh, be the defensive coordinator at Idaho. And uh, a guy that I got to know that was at uh, Nevada, Reno, John L. Smith, um, got the head coaching job at Idaho. And so I went there in 1989 and um, we had a great season. We were undefeated in the Big Sky Conference and went to the semifinals. And it wasn't too hard to be a defensive coordinator there because we had a quarterback named John Freeze who was drafted in the second round and played for the San Diego Chargers. So he was good for about 35 points a game. So just had to keep him under 21 and we were going to win usually. Uh, and then uh, uh, Paul Roach had called me the year before and offered me the offensive line job at Wyoming, but I turned it down because I'd just taken the D coordinator job and I didn't want to go back on my word. And he called in 1990 and offered me uh, the offensive line job again, because his, his old line coach went back in the NFL. So I went to uh, Wyoming and was there for three years. And that's where Aubrey was born. And then uh, Jim Wacker offered me um, my, my, my wife and two daughters were in a very, very bad car accident in 1991. <clears throat> they were head on by a double trailer semi truck. So Aubrey was six months old at the time of the accident. And uh, it was a godsend that we got to come to Minnesota with all of the uh, special needs that she had, medically speaking. Um, and we were about to have to do a lot of driving back down to Denver from Laramie. So I spent five years here with Jim Wacker. He, he's, he was another uh, guy that uh, really shaped um, my thoughts on coaching and how to handle people. And um, uh, then, you know, he got cancer and uh, resigned. And then Glenn Mason came in and I was fortunate enough that he kept me. And I started out the first four years on the D-line back to the offense. In 2008, I was at um, kind of weekend warrior coming back home because my youngest daughter was a senior in high school and that was their first year moving up and I was the officer coordinator there and it was it was a great experience. Uh, that was really the first time the shoe was on the other foot. I was the old guy on the staff and a lot of younger guys were working underneath me. Uh, and then after that year, uh, Hawaii called, and so we went there for three years and had a great time there. And I won a lot of football games, and uh, things didn't work out there like it didn't work out here with Mace, and we won, but we just they wanted something different. So then uh, I went to help a buddy of mine out at Idaho for a year, uh, and then uh, that didn't work out. The schedule was pretty ominous. We played uh, LSU, North Carolina, UCLA, and BYU as our non-league games. That was that was pretty mount taunting. And but the university got 4.5 million dollars uh, in guarantees from those that scheduling, so they paid the bills. But we uh, got beat. So then we went to uh, uh, University of Houston with Tony Levine and. Did well there, but they didn't like what he was doing there. Eight, four, and eight, four his last two or three years, and that was not good enough. So 
I decided uh, that I want to go back to Division Two and uh, coach where it all started for me in 1976. And I uh, went to CSU Pueblo. I had a good friend there that was a head coach and um, won a lot of games, had a lot of great opportunities uh, to meet young men, coach them up. Um, and then a year ago, uh, my wife was more interested in uh, what my granddaughters were doing with their, my daughter and son-in-law. And uh, she she suggests she suggested strongly that uh, I uh, enjoy my granddaughters growing up because I kind of missed my daughters growing up, but I got the hint, and so uh, I walked away in February uh, this year. Coach, uh, one of your most noteworthy stops, as you talked about here, was at the University of Minnesota. Uh, while you were there, how did the program evolve, and what were some of the challenges you had to deal with throughout your tenure there? Well, I think I think uh, when we got there, you know, I, I I don't believe that you ever badmouth or uh, criticize uh, the staff that was um, before you. I was a holdover coach at Wyoming and a holdover coach here at Wyoming. I mean, at uh, Minnesota, and uh, I think when Jim got there, we we did a much better job of enhancing the academic performance of our athletes. We put a very very entertaining offense on the field. We were usually in the top five in most categories, except for rushing, uh, but scoring and yards per game and all that stuff, if, it, if that floats your boat. Um, and uh, we brought some very quality individuals into the program over those first four years. Um, I think the challenge uh, was the past, but the challenge is always the past. Um, in my 41 years of coaching, uh, no matter where you go, um, there are people that uh, have long memories of how great a football team or a school used to be and why can't they be there now. Uh, that's one challenge that you always have to be aware of and um, be sensitive to. Um, the other is how uh, your players perceive your program. Um, and if you don't have trust and respect and um, overall feeling that they're thrill of the players and to put together a product or a team that um, can execute well on the football field, uh, then you've got you've got issues. Um, they're not gonna they're not gonna um, play well together. Uh, so I think I think you know transitioning between with Jim here after Goody and then with Mace, you know Mace would always say that that uh, um, Jim Wacker left him a very talented and very um, well charactered team. Um, and when Mace came in, he put the pieces uh, the necessary pieces together 
and um, formulated a an offense and a defense. You know, I'll never forget being the defensive line coach in the first uh, time we were all sitting in the staff meeting together as a defensive coaching staff. Jim, uh, Glenn walked in the room, and we were ranked dead last prior the previous year with uh, with with Jim and Tim Rose as the D coordinator in rushing defense. And uh, Coach Mason told us, I don't care if they throw 100 touchdown passes over our head. I want you guys to stop the run. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that pretty much rang loud and clear. So we uh, kind of, uh, not kind of, we we went down and talked a lot with K-State and uh, how they were running their eagle and their reduced eagle and over front and uh, their secondary coverages. And, and we pretty much stuck it all the way in. We were not going to get a touchdown pass, give up a touchdown pass rushing the football. And I think the very first year we went from last to third, uh, if, I'm, if I to remember right. We had a few touchdown passes thrown overhead. but uh, And then uh, – each each year of that transition, um, Elliot Uslak was there for one year, and I went in to ask Mace if he wanted me to move back to the offensive line, and he said, no, I think we're playing good defense, and I want the continuity of the staff to stay the same. And then Loney came in for two years, and he said the same thing because none of us had left um, on defense, and we were playing very good defense by then. Now we're in bowl games, and uh, – and then when uh, Jared Smith uh, left or got fired, whatever you want, how you want to say it, um, Giddy left to go to the Broncos, and Snyder left to go back to Ohio State with Jim Tressel, who he worked for at Youngstown, and uh, Steve Stripling left to go to work for John L. Smith at Louisville. That was the only guy left on defense, and that excuse didn't hold anymore, so he told me that I was moving back over to be the offensive line coach and let's get through recruiting and let's, let's, let's go with it. And uh, that's how that happened. <laughs> so as your time as the uh, offensive line coach and um, work on the offensive side of the ball, what sort of run plays and concept was your rushing attack built around? Well, I think, you know, in the game of football, um, you've got, you've got, it's a situational game. So, you know, to say that our bread and butter probably was inside zone and outside zone. But to be good in short yardage in, in red zone and goal line, you have to have some some power, some ice, some off tackle, some ISO, and, and you know, some plays that are, are gap plays. A lot of guys say we're a gap team, we're a zone team. Well, gap plays are just, backward zone plays. I mean, if you want to keep it really simple in your mind, um, zone plays, you're working out to play side gaps. Gap plays, you're working back to backside gaps. So, you know, you, you got to have a little bit of that in your offense. I think if you got more than seven run plays in your in your offense, you've got too many. Um, and a lot of it uh, depends on um, your, your, your talent. Um, whether it's not so much in the offensive line, but it's, it's more uh, what do you have that your backs see well? Are they they got good peripheral vision? Do they do they 
Do they understand speed through the hole, not to the hole? All those host of things. Um, but to, to, to constantly run down, you, you see, you see teams a lot of times in today's world, um, the RPOs and the spread teams, and they, they're basically zone only, but they really struggle in short yardage. Um, they rely on the quarterback read game um, to get them those yards. Uh, and, you know, you can get punked out if you're a quarterback, uh, if you make the wrong read. But um, they, they don't really have, you know, having four wideouts out there is not doing you a lot of good because uh, now you only got about, 10 yards in zone and five at the max. Um, so you're not going to run away from them. Uh, you might try to run crossing patterns and things like that, but then you got to protect longer. So that becomes another issue. So I think, um, you know, what we were, what we were doing here in Minnesota with Jim Wacker, we, we ran counter, we ran some power. Um, but when Mace got in here, we, we obviously evolved to a run first team, which again sets up your play action. Those are those are there's a lot of good play actions that are very effective in short yardage and goal line um, uh, to get the ball out quickly um, if they if they overplay the run. So, in my opinion, um, you're, it's easier to formulate an offense when you're a run first team than it is when you're a pass first team. Coach, what teaching points or drills did you use to help make your inside zone and outside zone so successful? Well, I, I think I think in, in in any block, you know, it, it all starts with your stance. So you, you start there. Um you know, I, I tell this to every offensive line I've ever coached and every camp I've ever worked where I'm, I'm working with a group of guys that, that are offensive linemen, but offensive linemen, it's a very unique position in that uh, excluding corners on the defensive side of the ball, it's the only position on the football field where you have to be able to move functionally and efficiently in all four directions. You need to be able to go right. You need to be able to go left. You need to be able to go forward and you need to be able to go backwards. And to be good at that, you have to have an excellent stance. So it all starts there. Then offensive linemen are built around foot patterns. So your first step, your second step, your third step, um, those are very, very critical. Um, and what is occurring on your first step, what's occurring on your second step, getting getting offensive linemen to realize that contact is always made on the second step of any block. Um, uh, so your first step is going to set your angle of departure your second step is going to be your power step that was got to be on the ground when contact's made. The the other unique thing about offensive linemen, and no other player on the football field um, deals with this except for offensive linemen, is you are blind to the football. Um, those five guys always have their back to the ball. Um, 
all of the off the skill players and all the players on defense have side of the football and the game is called football, right? So see the ball, go get the ball. They have to have a unique uh, ability to, this is a big word, kinesthetically understand through blocking uh, where the ball is. So um, you have two advantages. You know the snap count and you know the play, so you know the point of attack. But once you fit it into your block, which is phase two, you have phase one, which is your get off, first and second step hand placement. You have phase two, which is your fit, which is your, your landmarks, uh, where you're striking, where your hands placed. Then phase three, obviously, is the finish. When you're fitted into a defensive lineman, you have to understand that he is going to try to take you to the ball. So having said all of that, there's a lot of individual drills that you have to go through to um, perfect your performance as an offensive lineman, and not only in the running game, but in the passing game. So there's never enough minutes on a practice plan for me in all my years of coaching for individual time. Um, you start with your first step, your second step, first step, elbows back. You're you're loading yourself up. Second step is when you're bringing your hands um, into the defender with a good base, um, heel toe um, foot pattern at that point. Uh, never going greater than that because you'll get caught being on one one leg, one foot in the ground, one foot in the air. That's not good. Um, so there's all those things that you have to perfect as an offensive line coach with your players. Um, you have to, uh, you know, talk about the fit, uh, which hand is your power hand trying to turn the defender's shoulders out of square, which hand is your post hand, which is your, your drive hand. Um, so as you're de developing these kids, you, you start from the very, very basics. And you work their way, you work their way up with their fundamentals before you ever teach them a play. Um, plays are easy. Uh, it's how do you do this? And I tell them, you know, I'm giving you a toolbox with a bunch of tools in it, and then um, for each play, you're gonna you're gonna select a tool that uh, gets the job done for you. Um, the other unbelievable thing, you know, particularly nowadays, not so much you know, in the 70s and 80s, but, you know, one one week you could be blocking a 300-pound uh, toad that can, you know, squat 700 pounds. The next week you could line up and you're blocking a 230-pound guy that runs a 4.8. Um, obviously, <laughs> you're going to have to change a few things you do um, versus blocking the, the – the stump versus the rabbit. Uh, so th those are all things that you change and, and you practice each week as you prepare because you've got to know your opponent um, to be a very good offensive lineman. One of the teams that you had while you were at the University of Minnesota featured both Marion Barber and Lawrence Maroney. Uh, Tell us what it was like to have such talented backs on your team and what kind of adjustments you guys had to make as a coaching staff to make sure that both players' talents were maximized. Well, I, I chuckle 
you know, I, I really chuckle, Brenda, and it's not, it's, don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I chuckle because I, I get that question ever since those two guys were paired up in the backfield together uh, everywhere I go. But really, I, I kind of got a chuckle because uh, when, when Mace came in, we had, we had a guy, well, even before Mace got there, we had, we had Chris Darkins and Thomas Hamner, but, but we had Thomas Hamner and Tellus Redman when we first got to, when Mace first got there. Two very good players, both, both played in the NFL. Both rushed for a thousand yards. Then we had Thomas Tellus Redman and Thomas Tapay, you know, another Minnesota born and bred guy. Uh, and they both were, you know, the hammer and the nail, so to speak, like Marion and Lawrence were. And then, then we had Capay and Barber uh, for that one year. And then Capay then moved on to the NFL. And then we had Barber and Maroney. And then we had Maroney and Gary Russell. So we really had a lot of really great running backs. Um, the, the thing that, that those two, though, were allowed us to do more so than any other group of backs uh, that I just mentioned was Marion had great ball skills, unbelievable hands. I, I mean, I'm sure if, if guys were listening and, and they were around back then, you know, he, he was he, uh, Joe Mahler only threw seven interceptions in his whole high school career, and five of them were Marion's picks. Um, he was a he was a great DB also in high school, and uh, so um, we could keep keep teams in base defense where they couldn't go and switch out personnel by having those two guys on the field at the same time, and then and then either moving Marion out to a slot or, or, or a wing or, or lining them up there. Um, so that, that gave us some, some uh, unique ability within our, within our formations to utilize both those guys and have them both on the field at the same time. Um, I don't, I don't know if we really structured uh, our offense around it, it didn't change much when, when Marion was on the field versus when Lawrence was on the field is what I'm trying to say. Lawrence was not great at running the inside um, zone. Marion, that was his cup of tea. Um, Lawrence obviously was very good once he understood how to read pullers and get behind them um, on the, on the edges of the play. Uh, we would, we would uh, institute um, a play we call bounce, which was inside zone. Um, but uh, all, all offensive linemen knew that they stayed on their outside landmarks and drove those outside landmarks because the ball was going to hit like an inside zone and bounce outside. A lot of people thought we were just running stretch, but that that was not, not the case. Uh, and then we would run the outside zone, but we would add the word Charlie to it which basically we still pulled for force, but we we totally let the play side inside backer run himself out of the play, and we targeted the next backer inside, the next backer inside, because once, and I think if, if people remember the Alabama game, um, that was the first 50-yard run that that uh, Marion had. Um, Esslinger pulled, let the play side backer run himself out off the edge, and then got the middle backer 
and our backside guard got the, the backside backer and Marion playing his foot in the ground and and took off running. And we all underreached that. So we all knew that Charlie Man, if my if my defender that I'm blocking in line, wanted to run, stop the outside zone, let him um stay on the inside number and, and just shove him out because we knew we would have leverage somewhere inside to get that wall formed. So those are some of the unique things when we had those two guys. Um, but to say that we we did a lot of things that were different when one guy was on the field versus the other, we really did it. Coach, if you had to describe yourself as a play caller, how would you describe yourself? Oh, probably very conservative, I guess, would be my description of myself. Um uh, if I if I get on to something that that uh, they're having a problem with, um, then I'm gonna I'm gonna run it until you you get you get your problem on defense solved, and and then I'm always gonna have something inside uh, uh, that takes advantage of what I think how you're gonna stop the play. That was probably the funnest thing the last three years. Um, Going back to to Division Two, not not that it's a slam on Division Two coaches or anything like that, not far from it, but um, so many schools nowadays are running the spread and running the R O P O and stuff like that that they just don't see twelve personnel, thirteen personnel uh, unbalanced um, out of those formations. So those those my first year at CSU Pueblo, we had a back that rushed for twenty five hundred yards. And another back that rushed for 1,500, um, and we rushed for 5,200 yards in the season. Um, but it was it was kind of fun. I I describe it as playing cards with my grandkids because um, once they uh, had one problem figured out, then they they had a giant problem somewhere else that we we had that play in our offense that we just exploit them. Uh, Year two, it, it 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 wasn't that much tougher. Year three, it got a little tougher, um, just because the coaches in the league uh, spent all off season trying to stop us because we we they they have won seven conference championships in a row there, so um, that's hard to do. Uh, Coach, to wrap kind of a few things up here, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions, uh, touching on various topics. Um, um, so the first sure. question I have for you is if you were looking for, to take a shot for a big play, what play are you calling? Always uh, a play action off my best run play or my one of my two best run plays. I'm, I'm always looking either uh, – I, personally, I like to keep the ball outside. So it would be either a deep comeback or a goal route um, with, with something underneath it that is an is a outlet if it's not there. Uh, design something so that uh, I'm not a big post guy, although I, I like posts, but um, bad things happen when you when you throw a post and it doesn't quite go the way you wanted it to go. I'm more of a throw the ball up the sideline or, or come back, deep come back, and uh, get somebody underneath, you know, stack the, stack the receivers a little bit. If you could only run one play for the entirety of a game, what would it be? Well, that's a tough question. It, it's a toss-up between uh, inside zone and or uh, power counter. Power counter, in my mind, is the same play. 
one of those two plays. I mean, it just really depends on my personnel, but um, uh, the formations that I like to use, that, that'd be my plays inside zone, which some guys, if they're listening to this podcast, it's, it's, it's not strictly inside zone. It's, it's a divide zone where I've got somebody coming back across the formation on our side of the line that is going to block that C gap um, or just run it straight at you with a, with a counter or power and then add a swarm aspect to it, which is a third puller with some kind of formational or emotional motioning um, uh, ingredient to it. Who's your most memorable athlete you've coached? I, I saw that when you when you sent me some of these questions and, and I I got so I got so many uh, I I mean it's it's I'd have to say if you're if you're gonna hold my feet to the fire and say one guy probably Greg Gesslinger I mean he was phenomenal I had never I had coached 27 years at that point when he and Mark Setterstrom came in I had never even started a redshirt freshman in those 27 years in the offensive line. And I had two true freshmen starting that year. Um, I think it was 2003, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Um, and the way those two, I mean, Greg was 238 pounds and starting in the Big Ten. Mark Setterstrom came from Northfield. He he was you know, he was a little bigger, but not not as athletic. And and what Greg accomplished, um, you know, in his four years, uh, doing the method of taking what I was giving them and using it the way they saw fit whenever the situation occurred, um, uh, was probably he, he, uh, Mark, Ben Hamilton was another guy, but there were so many, I just remember Joe Quinn, um, he was a walk-on from Baldwin over in Wisconsin. When Mace got hired, he said to me, he says, we can't have him starting. You know, and I, I guess it was when I, I was still – and he said he looks like a pair. Uh, and once he saw him play, though, he said, okay, yeah, you're right. He should start, but make him get off the bus last. So there was always some kind of joke about Joe Quinn. Well, the, one of the, my most memorable moments as a coach is we're, we're getting ready to play uh, Oregon the second time. And that's when they had uh, Junior Savoy and Igor, whatever his name was. They were both first-round draft picks as D linemen. And Joe had blown his ACL out in the Iowa game the last game of the regular season. And he came into my office, and he was crying, and he, and he told me he could play. He had a month to get ready for the game, and he wanted to play. And I said, well, you know, You've got a completely torn ACL. How are you going to do that? So he convinced me. I went in to talk to Mace. And Mace was like, are you nuts? He's going to be blocking guys that are first-round draft picks. And, and those are kind of stories that – and he played. And he I protected him in practice. I didn't let him go in there and did a lot of stuff. But he played that whole game. And uh, he's working over at the university now in the – fundraising but um to have that kind of commitment and and desire uh, 
uh, and come in as a walk-on and earn a scholarship. And I mean, it's just one of those stories that's always going to be with you uh, forever and ever. Jeremiah Carter was another one that walked on from Central St. Paul and, you know, nobody thought he would ever play. And he started for two years um, as a guard. And uh, he's over there at the university now as a, as a compliance officer. He's the head guy over there. Um, that's just the kind of guys that you get to work with uh, in college football. And, and, and the same way in high school, I'm sure anybody that's listening to this podcast has a player or two that, that uh, just grabs a chunk of their heart and just to go, wow, what a great person. What is your favorite stadium you've coached in? Uh, it's kind of a toss up between Penn state and Ohio state. Now I'll say this, when you beat Wisconsin at Wisconsin, which we did, uh, twice while I was coaching here, um, (laughs) that's pretty fun too. Uh, particularly when you got to walk through all those goddamn people in red, uh, uh, when you're taking your wife and your kids back to the car to drive back from Madison to Minneapolis, um, I'll tell you, the worst stadium I ever coached in was God dang Iowa. Uh, my first, my first year here, we we're playing them down there. We had we had a, had a big old redshirt freshman named uh, uh, um, Jeff Baldoff. Kid was from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, like six eight. Uh, I think he started here one year for me uh, in his senior year. But we're beating him. We're beating him pretty good. And we beat him the year before uh, at home here um, to knock him out of the rolls. Well, I don't know if you remember that. It was 92, 93, something like that. But uh, so I, we're beating him enough to where I'm going to put the down-the-line guys in. And I tell him, Jeff, you're going in the game. Get ready. You know, get warmed up. And he tells me he can't. And I said, why? And he pointed up into the crowd. The student section is right behind you. And they can literally hang over the rail and take stuff off the bench. And they had snagged his helmet because he didn't have it in his hand. And they had taken it off the bench and were passing it around the student section, waving it in the air. Uh, so I told him, well, you better go find somebody that's got your head size because you're going in the game with, with or without a helmet. And I went over to the equipment guy and said, hey, we got a problem. One of our helmets is working its way up there in the student section. And, uh, so that that's probably the, the place I hate to play the most just because their fans are jackasses and um, um, they're very, very rude to my wife and daughters one year after they beat us down there. Just not one of my places I like to go. All right, Coach, to kind of wrap things up, we have a tradition on our podcast where the last question that we ask our guests is that if – if you were a professional baseball player or if you were a professional wrestler and you had to pick up your walk-up song, what would your walk-up song be and why? Oh, geez. That's a, that's a tough one because I'm not a big music guy, but uh, I kind of like We Will Rock You. Kind of like I kind of like that one. Uh, there's a few stadiums in the Big Ten that play that uh, when you go play them there. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, that's yeah, not a bad one. Not, uh, not too big on that. I, I, uh, I did coach at South Dakota for one year when they were moving up and, uh, 
I remember uh, we went out to play uh, Greensboro. They were they were one double A school in South Carolina, but they were a very uh, Christian school. And uh, all the music they played, I could recognize the music, but there were no words to it. So I asked Coach Marquardt. I said, "What? Why? Why don't they play the words to the songs?" And so he didn't know. So he went over and asked their head coach, and because there were too many songs that had too many bad things, words in them. So they just put the music and took the words out of them. It was awesome. If you found this podcast helpful, please take the time to go and leave a review either on Stitcher or iTunes and let us know what you think. 